You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. The women that I work with, even though they're leaders in their fields, a lot of women are typically very bad at really holding their self-care as a primary goal, right? So we'll go into something with our partner and we'll just kind of like, no, whatever you want, you know, whatever you want is fine. And we'll squash our boundaries. And that usually leads to resentment. (laughs) So having a space for boundaries and what's best for your self-care, what do you need to show up your best? That was Alexandra Jamison, co-author of Radical Alignment, along with her partner, Bob Gower. I wanted to pull them on today to talk about what it's like to write a book with your partner is it something a lot of creative people wonder about? Listen in to see how their work emerged and how the process of achieving radical alignment that they discuss in their book was actually really useful for them while navigating this journey. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, And I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Alex, Bob, thanks so much for joining me today on the Productive Flourishing Podcast. I love talking about talking. um, And I love um, better ways to reach consensus and alignment and um, shared purpose. And that's what I love about your book is because it gives us yet another tool, but that has some uniqueness to it, that has some ways in which it stands out from some other things that I read. So one, thanks for writing the book. Two, thanks for showing up today. Thank you for having us. Our pleasure on both counts. All right, so we're going to talk a little bit about the process of writing the book, and then we're going to talk about the book itself. And I'm doing this because I know a lot of people actually do like to know the behind the scenes and then the book itself. Um, But what's unique about your book, there's a lot of things that's unique about the book, but it's a co-authored book with life partners. And uh, many people, I think, um, think about writing books with their partners And they have certain illusions or dreams or fantasies about how that is. And um, what I've learned is that um, it's a big thing, whether you realize that before or after writing the book. So (laughs) um, talk to us about the journey of this book. And also, this book started in a different form with a different title than it is now. So I'd just like to hear that history and how you two have interwoven that history. (laughs) We're looking at each other to see who's going to go first. Why don't you go? Okay. So we, in the first three or four years of our relationship, we were actually teaching a couple of couples workshops. And we noticed that it was pretty much all like man, woman couples Mm -hmm. coming together. And they were coming to the workshop. Well, I'll be honest. It was usually the woman like dragging her male partner to the (laughs) workshop. So there wasn't um, an equal amount of enthusiasm for a couple's workshop from both members of the couple. And we realized, okay, these, these folks are not on the same page. And we ended up using this, a, a version of this method that we talk about in radical alignment to help everybody just really come together and uncover 
Why are you here? What do you want out of this? What are your concerns, etc.? We did a couple workshops. They were fine. But what kept happening after these workshops, for the next two or three years, we kept getting those people who came, texts, phone calls, emails. What was that four-step method that you taught us again in the workshop? Because it was so good in the workshop and I need it for this other thing. We'd get like texts from friends who are at the salon or you got a call when you were in a taxi and you had to like walk somebody through it. And I'm like, wait a minute, people keep asking, let's put this in a Google doc so that we can just stop explaining it to people. We were a little slow yeah. on the uptake. Yeah. And we were using it, we were using it ourselves too. Like it became this really found, we suddenly realized like that this was something that we were using whenever we were facing something difficult. And it feels, it's, it's a little strange because maybe I'll just give you the steps. So we just, you just sort of, before you do something with somebody else and I do, I run, I run this with teams. I've run, you know, who are doing big expensive projects at work. We've done this as a as a couple talking about our new, you know, moving or start or writing this book. Frankly, we, we use it for that. Or, you know, our kid getting into high school, all, all sorts of different um, use cases for it. But it's really simple. You just talk about what are your intentions? What are your concerns? What are your boundaries and what are your dreams? Intentions, concerns, boundaries, and dreams. And it's so simple and it doesn't even seem like a methodology. Like it doesn't even seem like a frame, you know, like it was just sort of like, I, I think we even overlooked that it was anything. It was just this thing that we did that we found really valuable, like in a taxi going to a party in New York city and one of us is tired. We're like, what are we, why are we going to this party tonight? You know, like, what do we, you know, and, and so you can have a good experience. So I can have a good experience. Let's set some boundaries. Mm -hmm. Let's set some rules. It's okay if you go home before I do, or okay, if I go home before you do, you know, like, yeah. and it, and all of a sudden we just realized after what, four or five years of using this, that it was so central to us creating like a wonderful, aligned, deep, respectful relationship and that other people were clamoring after it as well for that reason. Yeah. So we were like, you know, this might be a little book. And I've published books before. I had four under my belt at that point. Bob had a book under his belt. And I was like, I did not want to go the traditional publishing route with this. I don't want to deal with the two-year process. This is like a little book. Let's just self-publish this. Yeah. And it was originally called Getting to Hell Yes. So we self-published it. And at that point, we had some stories from friends that we had taught it to and clients. We're like, all right, we can like show some examples of how it works. And it did so well being self-published that it got picked up by a real deal publisher. And now we've expanded it. We've included a lot of really rich information about psychological safety and all the things that you need for effective communication besides this really effective tool. Yeah. The, the self-published book is the new proposal. Right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it can happen that way. And the world of publishing changes by the month. Um, it really, really does. Um, but I want to go back to that moment. So you're in a couple's workshop. There's this misalignment that you see, or there's like, um, you, you, you call it asymmetric interest <laughs> right? <laughs> in the actual workshop. Um, did this just like, Zeus out of the sky, like hit you in the forehead or was it something that you had been working before, like in your relationship before, like, like how did this emerge as a four step process? It, it was actually even, even a little longer of a process than that. It was more like we taught a workshop and then we realized, you know, we taught a couple and we realized that like some couples had not had a great experience 
and we were and we were sort of like, okay, so why didn't they have a great experience? Because they're both like fine people, you know, like there's not, you know, and they, and they both kind of wanted to be there. But we realized what was what was going on was they were sort of they were there for different reasons. And they didn't and it wasn't that their reasons were incompatible. It was that they didn't understand that they were there for different reasons. And they didn't have this appreciation of the other person's reasons. They didn't have empathy essentially for each other. And so what we did was we just said, well, what are, what are the, there's a missing conversation here when this is something we talk about a lot in the book is sort of like the conflict often arises because not because there's a fundamental conflict, but just because we haven't talked, we just haven't had the conversation. And so we're like, okay, so what are the missing buckets? Well, there's the missing, one of the missing buckets is um, why we're there. Like just simply what brought us there, you know? Mm -hmm. So like for a workshop, it could be, I'm here because, you know, I want our relationship to go better. And you're here because you want me to have that experience. You know what I mean? Like you're here, you know, and sometimes like people feel like that, that feels bad. Like, oh, you're just here because I asked you to be here. Well, like, that yeah, can be enough. That can be enough. That can be great. <laughs> Let's just have that conversation. Let's appreciate that. And then the second piece was we both have different fears. I'm afraid, you know, like that you're going to have a bad experience and they're going to blame me, you know, or you know, whatever it is, right? Or I'm afraid that I'm going to have to be vulnerable. I'm going to have to share something about myself and I'm usually a very private person, something like that. So, and because our, you know, as you know, right, like that your, our brains are very, very, very negative, have a strong negativity bias. As soon as we start to do something, we start to figure out why it's going to go wrong. So we're like, okay, let's get all that stuff out because it's silly, most of it, but let's just get it out. Let's just get it out on the table. And ones that aren't silly, you can usually mitigate and that's where boundaries come in. So now, so now it's like, okay, and there's some, and maybe there's some things that I will not talk about in this, in this workshop. And I'm just not going to, I'm, you know, I'm just not going to bring it up. And I want you to respect that boundary rather than push me on that boundary. And in case, in the case of boundaries, I've been coaching women for about 20 years and the women that I work with, even though they're leaders in their fields, a lot of women are typically very bad at really holding their self-care as a primary goal, right? So we'll go into something with our partner and we'll just kind of like, no, whatever you want, you know, whatever you want is fine. And we'll squash our boundaries. And that usually leads to resentment. <laughs> so having a space yeah. for boundaries and what's best for your self-care, what do you need to show up your best? And then there's another way that boundaries show up that we talk about a lot as well, which is topic creep, right? So all of a sudden, I thought we were talking about, you know, our sex life or our financial life. And now you're telling me about how my mother was rude to you at Christmas last year. Like what, what the hell, you know, not that that's ever happened with us, but, uh, but like, like what's going on. <laughs> I just don't want people to get the wrong. Not that anyway. Um, but we, you know, like, so we, we really want to just one, we want to constrain the conversation to a, to a, a place that's productive. Mm -hmm. And two, we want to really respect each other's boundaries. And if, you know, like if someone doesn't want to talk about something, it's unlikely that forcing them to talk about that thing is actually going to, going to necessarily go well. And it's, it's interesting because Bob came from the world of design. He was actually a newspaper designer. And I came from this world of more holistic coaching for women. And we, uh, it's a really interesting mashup of our two worlds of experience, but we both really believe in the final step being dreams. We used to call it desires. And actually my last book was called women, food and desire and how, when you, I mean, you have to end on a high note together. What's the ultimate dream? What's the vision? What's the thing pulling you forward together 
So you can release that boost of oxytocin together and really feel like a team. That's fantastic. So that's um, intentions, concerns, boundaries, and dreams. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the four layers of the conversation to work through. Um, one of the things that I found as I was reading the book is um, when I wrote Start Finishing, there are five keys that I had there, which was intention, awareness, boundaries, courage, and discipline. <laughs> right. And so we're sharing some of the C's, but it's because these are fundamental human things. Like if you're trying to do something, which is what Start Finishing is about, not that radical alignment is not about that, but like you need to be intentional. You need to mm-hmm. know what your boundaries are. You need to know, you know, what some of these things are. Just like if we're having these conversations, what are your intentions? Yeah. Um, what are your concerns? What are your boundaries? What are your dreams? Right. So that's, you know, a lot of reasons why I l- not, I didn't love it because of the five keys. Um, I loved it because it had those essential pieces. And Alex, I'm glad you mentioned um, your backgrounds, because as I was reading this, I just happened to know that um, you've been in a holistic life coaching uh, modality for um, many years, and Bob's been in, broadly speaking, management consulting, right? We can get dive deep deep in. Mm -hmm. And so um, there is this way in which there's this convergence from coaching and consulting that shows up with like, really, what are we doing here? That's the intention. Yeah. Right? What are the, like, and so it's just a alternative, but complementary ways of thinking about the world that came together for this. Yeah. And I think this is something we've been reflecting on a lot and maybe talking about, you know, what it was like to create a book together. One of the things I've just been so appreciative of, and this is, by the way, this is something that every time I go back to it, I learn something else. You know, every time I go, every time I use the methodology, I learn, I, it, 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 it takes on more nuance and it becomes deeper. But as I've been reading the book, and of course, we're in big promotion mode right now, so I have to go back through it and find quotes for things or find, you know, find ways of promoting it. I'm like, this is so much you and me. Like, the, like it's, it, it, it really is like the, there's no way either of us could have done this on our own. We each could have written our own version of the book. But the book has such a richness, and I think the reason it has the richness is, is, I mean, broadly speaking, Alex holds sort of the personal side, and broadly speaking, I hold the business or the team side. And really, we're talking about bringing more humanity into your team. You know, like let's on, let's let's be more human, let's be more real, let's be more let's let's be more emotional, essentially together, and then let's be more strategic, personally. Yeah. You know, like if we're gonna have a baby or buy a house together or do some, you know, go on vacation together. Let's be intentional about what that is for each of us. Um, you know, what is it? Somebody was saying the other day, hope is not a strategy. They really like latched on to that one phrase from the book, which is totally stolen from somewhere else. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I saw it in like chapter two, like it was one of the lead ins to it. So um, what? why I wanted to highlight this genesis of the book is because I know so many authors and so, or so many aspiring authors get stuck because they'll have some insight or some framework or something that they pull together and it works, but they're afraid to push it forward because it's not, you know, it didn't come from Harvard or it didn't come from, you know, it didn't come from some of these places. And so there's not a realness to it, right? At the same time that it's entering into a realm in which other ideas exist. And so they're like, well, mine's not really real. Theirs are real. But when you look at it, like, that's how some of these things come up. Alex, you're shaking your head. (laughs) You know, I have been a part of so many creative projects and partnerships, some of which have gone gloriously and global and some of which have gone nowhere. And you just never know. 
And what I loved, I mean, this book has been on a journey to become what it is. And it was a series of, of beta tests and like, let's try this and let like, it's, I'm all about experimenting and trying stuff. And that's the only way I know how to create something. I'm not a scientist who's going to sit down and study something for 10 years to find the proof. For me, the proof is that we taught it to people and they kept using it and they kept saying, this is helping us. That's all the proof I needed. Yeah, and every step along the way was its own thing too, right? You know, so like we didn't make the self-published book thinking this is going to get us a book deal. Like it was sort of like it, we thought it might stop there. Because it was, it solved the problem that we were trying to solve right then, which was we wanted to put something, we wanted to try to do something together. I mean, that was part of it. Like we'd never done a project together. So let's do a project together. We both know the power of publishing something and having something out there in the world with your name on it. And this seemed really valuable and it seemed really useful. And we're like, oh, let's, you know, we just did it in our spare time kind of. Mm -hmm. And then, and, and, we, and we got it out and we just sort of let it sit there for a while. And then somebody found it. And then we were like, oh, there's this other new opportunity. Mm -hmm. And it just sort of, it, it kind of went one stage to the next, to the next in a very sort of natural and organic way. I, I grew up actually Portland, Oregon on an old farm. My mom was a master organic gardener. And what I've known my whole life is that you can put the seeds in the ground and you can show up and you can weed the garden every day and water. But, you know, I mean, you have to show up and do some of the work, but a lot of it is just the magic of the universe, life and mother nature doing her thing. So I really do feel like there is a, like, you have to show up and have intention and do the work and you got to keep your eyes open for like what the possibilities are. Alex, I know you've moved to New York, but um, because you said the magic of the universe, we Portlanders will keep you. You're still <laughs> ours, right? Oh yeah, I'm coming back. I'm coming okay. back soon. Keep my, feet, my spot open. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> um, so before we start diving a little bit more deeply into the book. Um, I'm curious about two significant aim conversation moments. Um, on the first part of the book, writing it in the self-published version and what's happened post pickup for traditional publishing. So just sort of two that you think really highlight that and how you use the method to sort of reach radical alignment again. Okay, I, I have to introduce this first one like okay so we actually used the all-in method to talk about whether or not to write this book about the all-in method because we both have a few broken relationships <laughs> in our past and a couple of them were fraught with creative tension and betrayal honestly so like get it it was like do we want to possibly ruin our relationship by writing a book together well we've been really i mean from the from the get-go of yeah. our relationship, we were like, we are romantic partners. Your business is great. I support you a hundred percent, but let's not talk about it over dinner. You know, like we were like, we were very, very explicit we about, like, the, for about the first four or five years of our relationship because we both had bad experiences with it in the past. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So actually using the conversation to help us feel our way forward is a huge win for us and, and speaks to the power of this method. <laughs> yeah. I mean, originally I think I was going to write the book by myself. Right? right. Yeah. And then I, and then I was like, I don't feel like I can do this by like, I just didn't feel right to do it by myself. It, it, it you know, and I even talked about writing it with somebody else. Like it was, it was sort right. of, it was, and then all of a sudden I think we were walking on the beach in like New Hampshire or something one day. And I was like, I think we need to do this together. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, it was not an obvious straight line of a path to yeah. get here. So yeah, that's unusual in my life. So you're going to tell the story about the concerns though, right? Um, that we had a concern. Oh. So as we had the conversation and we got to the concerns part of the conversation, we both had the same concern, which is we're going to fight while we write this book together and we're going to break up as a result. <laughs> and of course, I think where, you know, like the negativity bias where it always ends, I think for both of us is alone under a bridge living in a van or something, you know, like, you know, like it's sort of like, down by the river. It's always it's, there. It's always there. Right. And so and I, I think as both of us, like as soon as we spoke at one, there was a sense of relief. Oh, you're feeling that, too. Mm-hmm. And then the second piece was actually by this point, we've been together like four or five years. We'd you know, we'd been through, we'd both lost a parent. We'd both been through surgery. We'd both been through so much together. We had a really solid relationship. And we're like, this is a- absolutely, utterly ridiculous. Yeah. And then the third thing that happened was we started talking about boundaries. And we're like, okay, well, clearly, either of us can say no at any time. We can just sort of tap out of the project at any time. And, it was, and, and the other one can just take off with it. And the other could take to. it if they wanted to. The other could, would, could take the project and make it their own. Yeah. And there'd be no harm, no foul. And I think all of that just made, you know, and we, and of course we've never, ever even gotten close to that point through it. But I think one of the reasons we didn't get close to it is because we had the conversation because we, we knew what we were looking for the warning signs. I think a couple of times we've gotten to be like, this is a little intense. I need a break. And and we just take a break. You know, this speaks to, I think the, the power of the order of the conversation as well. You okay, what are we talking about? Why are we, why are we going to do this? But your concerns. And here's what we learned through the writing and the research and talking to our, our, our real expert friends, like the PhDs and the psychiatrists who told us actually, when you express your concerns and your fears in a, a really a trusting, safe container, the amygdala can calm down. And then once you express and you're like, Oh, I said it out loud and I didn't die. And they're still here then your whole nervous system relaxes and you actually become a better decision maker and your creativity is more on point. So the whole format of the process helps you. It it may not help you in the moment make the decision or solve the problem, but it helps you get to the place where you are a better problem solver. I'm going to amplify that last point because I think there's, there was a strain of pop self-help that went along the lines that if you spoke about the things you were concerned about, or if you named the fears that you somehow gave them power mm-hmm. and there, I think it created sort of a cultural inflection point for people in sort of the, the broad realm that we're in is like, if I say it, then it's true or it has more power. And obviously in the way that I'm saying it, you can see how I feel about that. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> um, and so it's such a weird, weird sort of thing for me to crash in from the military side of things where it's like, that's what you do. You put all the things on like, why would you walk into a minefield knowing that there are mines there because you didn't want to say there are mines here. Right. Right. Um, Now that's graphic example, but it happens in these scenarios. And I think people are afraid that if they say, I'm afraid that if we write this book, we're going to divorce, that that means that there's something in there's some underlying problem in the relationship. Right. And now you've put it into the universe because you said it out loud and now you're making it happen. That kind of thinking makes me a little crazy, honestly. It doesn't acknowledge the humanity of how the human brain works and that it's okay for you to have a variety of emotions at the same time. Yeah, I'm really glad you said the thing about minefields. That's a that's a phrase we use often um, in that what we're, what we're trying to do is not 
force alignment, because we call the book, the book radical alignment because that's really the best case scenario, or one of the best case scenario. The other best case scenario is no alignment. It's de determining, figuring out that, oh wait, we are so not, we are so different in what we're, our intentions are, what our concerns are, what our boundaries are, that there's no way that we're going to collaborate. There's just no way that we're going to work together, which is a great, but often we just sort of exist in this gray area where we're like, well, I hope it'll work out. You know, like, let's just try and let's just see what happens. Let's just go with it and see what happens for a little while, which, you know, I think it has its place. But what, what we realized were happening in this workshop and, is, and happening when we would watch, when we would reverse engineer what would go wrong with projects we were working on or things we were working on is that there was a mine that was sitting there that someone would just stumble over and be like, oh, my God, I didn't know that was there. And it's so much worse to stumble upon something rather than be like, oh, man, I know that this topic is actually sensitive for you or I know this time is sensitive, you know, like personal boundaries for work. Sometimes I have to talk to somebody after five o'clock, but if I know their boundary is they don't want to be talked to after five o'clock because they have kids or they're caring for an elderly parent or something like that, I can at least be very sensitive. Like I need, I'm so sorry, I need to talk to you now rather than having that, you know, having it show up as an expectation, which then creates all of this sort of like emotional disturbance. Also amplifying the second best case is, um, again, the book was getting, or the first book was getting to hell yes. Right. I think a lot of people are afraid of a hell no. Right. Um, but those are really great edges to know. Right. If it's yeah. just a hell no, like stop. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. Stop. Right? right. Don't don't be in this lukewarm. I don't know. It's a hell no for someone. Right. Uh, move on. Reclaim that energy. Reclaim your time. Go do something else. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I had to learn that, though. That took, that took me maybe the first 35-ish years of my life to get comfortable with. Yeah, I think it took me two marriages to figure out that saying no to somebody might, you know, might might actually free up some energy for me. Yeah. Rather than rather than everyone. waiting for things to get terrible and like and you know, all of the all of the confusion that goes along with that. Just being clear, like, oh no, this is what works for me, this isn't what works for me. So Okay, so second part of the story. So that was in the genesis of getting to hell yes that then became radical alignment. So as you're thinking about that transition, what was another one of those conversations that came up um, that would be useful to sort of work through how you all use the method to reach alignment? I would actually love to talk about our creative process. Mm -hmm. This was the least effortful or most effortless writing process I've ever been in. This is my fifth book. And I thought I really had the fear that writing together in this, like really expanding into a full blown book was like, this is going to be hard. I'm, I'm worried that we're not going to like each other's style, that we're going to step on each other's toes, that just the writing process, the creative co-collaborative process was going to be awful. And there were timelines and I was like, oh man, this is like extra pressures on our relationship and how are we going to get through this? Um, and you had the same concerns. Yeah. And I think for the process, it was less like a single conversation. So in the first case, it was like, let's have a conversation about doing this together. We worked through it, you know, played scales together. You know, we, we like worked the process as a process. And I think by the time we got to the second, you know, to the book, to the second book, it was much more of a part of our life. We thought about it in great detail and it had also seeped into our natural communication style. And I think what I kept noticing 
was as I would write, I, I can be a little controlling or I can, I can get my own idea. Like, this is the way a thing should be. I think we both are like that, right? But I'm, I know I'm like that. I have that. no idea what you're talking yeah. about. So I'm like, this is the way it should be. And so then we would have, con- and I would be very afraid of like editing your stuff, like that you would feel bad about it. And then I would go back to, wait, wait a minute, our intention is to write a really good book. So if our intention is to write a really good book, then we should be heavily editing each other. And so then I was able to bring that concern to you that I'm afraid I'm concerned that I'm going to make you feel bad if I delete that sentence or if I do this or if I do that. But as we would have, and then as we'd have the conversation, so we would have the conversation and then it would allow me to be more courageous and also using Google, frankly, with non-destructive editing, you know, like being able to like, we could go back to any old version anytime. So we're not going to lose those words necessarily, Mm -hmm. but it allowed me to like, as I would sit down to write, I would just be really ruthless. Like I would be like, what does this need to be? Make it a hundred percent what it needs to be. And then I would give you permission to do that. You go take that chapter now and make it a hundred percent what you think it needs to be. And this kind of like magical sort of shared voice kind of emerged from the process. And again, yeah. it was, it's like, I, we just reread it for the audio audio book. We just had to like read the audio book. And I was like, I don't feel a little conceited saying this, but I was like, Oh my God, this is really good. Really good <laughs> this, is really, this is really good. Yeah. So how we did it was, I mean, we basically divvied up the chapters and the sections it's like, all right, I'm going to own this one. I'm going to do my deep dive, write this thing, and I'm just going to hand it over to you. And you're just going to edit the heck out of it. And then I'll take it back and read it. And we didn't have to approve any edits together. We had developed the trust through using the conversation together. And it worked beautifully. I mean, and those were, it's interesting to talk about boundaries in this case, like really specifically, we're going to use Google Docs. This is how we're going to write it, and then I'm going to edit. Like it was really the the structural, tactical way of writing together that became the boundaries. I love it, and that's one of the things I did notice from the book. By the way, is that there wasn't a Bob voice or an Alex voice. There was like this voice that somehow managed to like be both of you, but not. And I've read plenty of books that are by two authors where you can tell when it's one author over the other. And so I thought that was really masterfully done. So thanks for commenting about that. I'm proud of us. Where you go, man? Because <laughs> <laughs> I've tried stuff like this before. <laughs> not so successful. <laughs> well, she did create an Oscar-nominated film, so... True. Created, All right. you know, All right. like it was successful. It was successful. It sounded painful, but it was it successful. Was, it was personally painful. <laughs> this was not. Yeah. I'll just say as an aside, like Alex sleeps on her receipts, right? Like she's done a lot, but she won't tell you about it. Right. So as listeners, as you go check out Alex, if you're like, what's going on here? Um, it, it's something that, that we can have another conversation about. <laughs> uh, I've never heard that expression, sleeps on your receipts. That's funny. Yeah. On our, on our first date, I, I was, so what do you do? <laughs> anyway, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so something that I've seen when people sort of come across a way of having a structured conversation is that it feels like it actually stifles their expression. Right. Like it like they just want to go and say what they need to say and having this order like it it stifles rather than opens up space. So if someone is sort of thinking about that and hears like, oh, there's this four steps, it's just orderly. That sounds very bro. That sounds very like I'm not going to get to say what I need to say. What would you say about that particular concern? I have to I have to speak up here because I had that fear at the beginning and I did not grow up as I think most people did 
I did not grow up learning an effective communication style. My communication style was codependency and sweep it under the rug. And I'm, you know, I'm the holistic hippie chick who studies druidry. So like having a conversation structure sounded very restrictive, but I'm also an artist. And I know that every artist and designer needs constraints. And we call this a very linear kind of masculine process in which to have an emotional conversation, like in which to hold your emotions. And it does feel strange at first because most people aren't used to bringing a structure to their interpersonal connection that way. So what I can tell you is that over and over again, I have found it to be so freeing and I feel so safe and it creates fairness. And the fact that we're raising a 13-year-old boy who now speaks up and talks about how grateful he is to be learning to care about other people's feelings and that he feels safe to share himself, like huge win for a little structure around your conversations there. You know, there's this idea in the, in the coaching or the team coaching space of a liberating structure Right. And I, so I think, think of this as an example of a, of a liberating structure. And one of our, uh, one of my favorite books of the past couple of years was a book called, what was it? It's Priya Parker's book. What's the, it's the art of the gathering. Art of gathering. Yep. Yeah. The art of gathering who weirdly we get our haircut at the same place across the street. We live in the same neighborhood in Brooklyn. That's, that's New York for you. That's New York for you. So um, the, but, but one of the things she talks about in there is the difference between it is a rules based interaction versus an etiquette based interaction. And what I love about the distinction is that an etiquette based interaction is one that, that sort of depends upon people having the same background and the same understanding. Right. So like if I was going to go have dinner with the queen, I would probably have to take, a month of courses in order to know exactly how to behave in that environment. And so, you know, a lot of my work with teams is all about, you know, sort of shared collaboration and creativity and a lot about inclusivity. You know, I don't work in the diversity space, but I work adjacent to it in, in a sense. And one of the things they talk about is like, when you depend upon etiquette, you are excluding people. You are naturally cutting people out who don't share your background, who don't have, who don't have your background. And so I think there's a way when I, when I cue this up in with teams that I'm working with, I always talk about, well, I talk about that. And I also talk about the idea that as we share, if we're sharing in roughly equal, if one person's dominating the conversation, that means somebody, that means we're kind of losing out on the other people in the room. And so that I'm just going to ask you to try on for today that we're going to try to roughly speak about the same amount. We don't want any one person dominating the conversation. And we're going to see if that doesn't change the way the room feels to you. We're going to see if that doesn't change the outcome. That's fantastic because, again, um, I think the concern that people have when it's a structured conversation is perhaps they won't get to say what they need to say or they won't be heard in the way that they need to be heard um, and just a counterpoint that I want to bring here, whether you use this specific framework, I highly encourage you to do, or some other, is think about all those times you've had an unstructured conversation and where that went. But more importantly, there's usually that, oh, man, I forgot to say the thing. I forgot to, like, you actually, by not having the structure, <laughs> didn't get to say what you wanted to say than if you had used a structure that had buckets for the things that you may want to say and want to express. Yeah, and I think the other thing is, like, if I'm in a conversation that's structured, and what we do is we go back and forth. So if we're in a group, we go around the circle. 
sometimes we set a timer, sometimes we don't, sometimes we just say to roughly kind of keep it. But now, rather than me sitting there thinking about what I'm going to say and trying to get that, you know, trying to get that word in, I know that it's going to come around to me. I know I'm going to get my chance. I know I'm going to be able to say what I want to say. So I can relax and actually listen to the other person, which is also the other piece. And I also, we also very much prime people to say, you want to listen in a way that's invitational, non-confrontational. We're not arguing. We're not, you know, this is actually not a, not a problem solving methodology. Like we're not going to like get into like, well, you think that and I think this, and what are we going to do about it? It's more, what do you think? And what do you feel? And now once we've, once we've gone through all of that, now let's see if there's a problem we need to solve. Right. And then we'll come up with we'll come up with a methodology to solve that because there are other methodologies. Our friend Rebecca Baruki wrote the foreword for the book, and it, was, it had been so powerful in her life, her marriage. She's a mother of five. She's an entrepreneur, and she's like, I was so bad at having conversations, but she was su- she's such a powerful individual. She claims you know she was the steamroller mm-hmm. in the family. And so nobody else had an opportunity to really say anything. <laughs> and she, she says, it's, it's so ingrained in me now. I just think about these four steps with every single conversation. And I've taught it to all of my kids who are now aged 22 to five. And they're all learning it too. And they, they have created this environment in their home where they are respectful. They pay attention to each other. There's less fighting. There, she's like it has changed. She's like it saved my marriage and it's changed my family. So those those moments where you do forget because you're you're trying to win, like you're trying to make your point, um, that doesn't really allow for intimate, true connection. I think that it may be well. Let, let's roll back to this idea of the missing conversation. Right. Because I think that's where we fall down so much is that um, not just around the structure, but like there's just something not being said. So so dive in a little bit deeper about this this idea of the missing conversation. Well, I think a, a good example of the missing conversation is concerns. Right. That often in order to bring up a concern, either it has to be so loud or so defensible that we need to bring it up. And yet often the concern is just sort of sitting there and it's impacting everything else that we're saying, right? It's in, or it's impacting all, you know, like the fact that it hasn't been brought forward, you know, and it also requires maybe a little bit of vulnerability. Like I think something I've suffered from a lot in my career and, and, you know, I've spent a lot of time facilitating meetings in, in, in some very sort of powerful boardrooms, but I always feel like I don't belong there. You know, like I always, you know, like imposter syndrome runs deep with me. And there were times when I'd be collaborating with a team of people and we would have to be designing something that was very sensitive and very important. And just being able to share with them, I'm actually suffering. You know, like one of my concerns is that people are going to laugh at me and I don't belong here. You know, it's kind of a throwaway, kind of a simple thing. But what that did was it brought us closer. And it brought, and then people are like, oh, yeah, me too. You know, like, <laughs> or sometimes people are like, I don't know that. And that's not my, that, that, that's not my thing at all. Mm-hmm. But I'll speak to boundaries that. Again, if you if you feel like you're not safe in an important conversation, are you really able to express yourself? So having the space to say, you know, these are the things that I need to take care of myself. 
these are the things that I need to show up my best to give my best work or to really be here for you. You know, I'll, I'll give an example. You know, we, we actually use this conversation every time we go on vacation before we go. And depending on where we're going and who we're seeing, we're like, you know, I'm not going to have any alcohol when we're visiting this certain family member because it, it lowers my inhibitions. It lowers my patience level. (laughs) And I just, I'm not able, even though it would be a nice little escape, I'm not able to like handle the situation very well. And so I'm able to go into the experience of a visit and just feel a little bit more like I've got my own back. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm really taking care of myself and you know what I need to take care of myself. So you're also, you've also got my back and that's a really awesome feeling. I love that. And as I was thinking about the relationships between the parts of the method, um, it made me reflect on the conversation I've had largely with women, actually, my, my female clients, that expressing their dream was a concern because of how it might change the family and change everything and how people. And so, um, you know, I was like, well, that that's a missing conversation for a lot of people that sometimes they don't even know that they can't have this conversation because, like, what if I say I want to be X? And that X is different than you want me to be, or it will require a different family structure or it will require moving. Like, so your dream can become a concern in that way. Alex, I see you nodding. One of my longtime clients is a top saleswoman in a top tech firm. And we had this exact conversation and she really wanted to move to Europe with her family and take over this whole European operations. And we went through exactly what you're talking about. And she's like, I'm just, I'm afraid to tell my husband what I really want. I'm afraid to tell my company what I really want, but they, they got to, and they moved to Amsterdam and she got this huge promotion, but it was that fear of what's this going to do to us. And can my family handle me at, you know, living my dream? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the real power of having a structured conversation to fall back on because other, you know, otherwise we censor, well, I just, there's no place to put the conversation. There's no place to put the concern. There's no place to put the dream. There's no place, you know, like there's just not the structure in place. So we always say that this is sort of a masculine linear structure that allows for an organic and not that everything has to have a gender, but an organic and feminine outcome which is this sort of feeling that we're on the same side, that we're on the same team. And I think even before we had this in our relationship, I think you and I kind of, I'm just remembering back to the kind of early days of our relationship. I think we both came in, we were older, we were, we had been disillusioned by some of our relational relationship experiences over our life. And we were like, all of the problems that we've had have come when we haven't talked about something that's important. And so I think one of the, re- one of the decisions we made very early on was, if something's important to one of us, we're going to talk about it. And we always say that good conversation and good, you know, good productive conversation happens when there's a slight feeling of danger, the slight feeling like I'm saying too much. Is it really safe to say this stuff? But isn't it amazing? Like when you're concerned about saying something, when I'm like, I don't know what the person's going to say. And then you say it and the person's like, oh, that sounds like a great idea. Let's do, let's do, let's do that. (laughs) Or they come back with their own concern and then you work through it and then you get, you get to the other side of it. Yeah. Um, 
This has helped me heal a lot of kind of early childhood family dysfunctional habits in terms of, you know, the things that go unsaid, the things that get hidden, the resentments that build up over decades, decades of resentments. (laughs) We're just not doing that. Thank goodness. We think of this as playing scales, you know, like, you know, it's not that improvisation is not still a thing and still something you want to do, but, you know all the great jazz musicians still play their scales every day. Right. You know, like you have, you know, like going through having a structure, having a way to like play your scales, go from one step to the next step to the next step to the next step means that when you get into a more organic environment, like it happened to me today, actually, I was with a talking to a new client and I was having one of those conversations where I was like, where's this conversation going? And I just went back to, I was like, well, what are the boundaries of this engagement? You know, like I just sort of, I had a place to take. I was just like, Oh, I, I have this like note to pull into the conversation. And it led to this, it really enriched the conversation and, and, and kept things moving along. Yeah. It's amazing how um, training can lead to resiliency um, in the sense. I think a lot of our worry in these conversations, is like, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't know what's going to happen. Right. And so that becomes so much of what's preventing the conversation. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you just have like, wait a second, I, I can, I don't know what to do. Oh, let's just talk about boundaries. Pick one. Doesn't matter. Right. Um, like just go forward and be resilient and work your way through it as opposed to hide and run from the conversation. I actually just realized something. And now I'm like, I, I need to go rewrite the last chapter of the book. <laughs> the fact that the book doesn't, isn't written specifically to get you to a decision is actually part of the magic because the pressure is off. We're not gonna figure it all out right now. We're just gonna like finally put everything on the table and see what we've got. And for a lot of us, like the pressure, like my whole world's gonna change by the end of this conversation is just too, I mean, it's just freaking me out. So I like, that's why a lot of important conversations don't get had because we don't want to have to deal with that decision. Well turns out like you'll come to the decision together either in this conversation or the next version of it or the next version of it so it's like oh i can relax we're just talking right yeah yeah like there's there's like this there's a leadership style which i find so toxic and i've just you know displayed myself many times which is you get in the situation you're like well i need to be a leader so if i'm going to be a leader i need to be decisive and i need to know what i'm talking about and so we end up like faking the whole fake until you make it thing, right? I'm going to fake it. <clears throat> and I've seen so much toxic behavior come out of that because I think rather than like this, the pressure to have the answer, the pressure to know the direction that we're going to move in, the pressure to feel like you can direct other people and push them in the direct. And this conversation methodology is non, non-directional <laughs> by design in a way. Like it's just sort of like, wait a minute, the direction will emerge. We'll figure out the direction we just don't have enough information yet. So let's together figure out what that missing, that's the missing conversation. Let's figure out what that missing piece is because if we had the missing piece, it would be clear which direction we could, it would be clear to all of us. I would, no one would have to bulldoze anybody else. It would just be clear to all of us what direction we need to go. Alex, I'm glad you mentioned the sort of rightness or the decision aspect of that. Cause as I was reading the book and um, I sort of saw all the three pole pa- the threefold path of alignment, like the right conversation, the right time, the right people. Um, my my first pass was like the right is what hung me up. 
um, as opposed to the conversation, the time, the people, because I think it created just in that little micro moment of like, oh, if there's a right, there's a wrong, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Or there is one way to do this, but it seemed counter to some of some of what I was reading earlier. So maybe we can lean into it a little bit because I think that's the freedom is when we let go of that, um, to Bob's point, that decision, like that right, or like this has to you know go a certain way. It's just rather than right, think of it as clear. Like we're you and I are clearly having a conversation about this topic, and we're going to do it at a time and a place that we've agreed to. That's that's what that means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've also had it be very liberating in in business because I think in business settings, in big corporations especially, it's common for people to talk. Like you'll get in a meeting, you just talk. Like, let's just get in a meeting and talk about stuff until we figure it out. And then after a while, you realize, wait a minute, we don't have the person in the room who actually has the author- the signing authority to make the decision that we need to make. And so we've just spent an hour or two hours wasting all of our time because we didn't actually think ahead of a time. You know, I, I used to, where I worked for a company, where I started learning all this was I worked for a, a great software company in Boulder, Colorado. And on every conference room, there was a, there was, there was a, a piece of paper on the door that said, what's this meeting about? You know, like, or what's the purpose of this meeting? And I think sometimes just asking the question, well, what is the right, who are the right people to be having in this conversation? And then all, then you can start surfacing, well, I think the conversation's about this and you think the conversation's about that. And then all, you know, so then we begin to realize where the misalignments, or misalignments are. And then right time, we have a lot to say about the oh, right, the right time. Yes, we do. <laughs> the right time is never right before bed. That is never the right time to have a It's okay to go to bed angry. It is actually. <laughs> so this is the one relationship rule that we break. I would rather go to bed angry with unfinished business because our, our brains aren't working at that. Well, mine isn't anyway. I, I'm not patient. I'm not empathetic. I'm just tired. And I just want to go to bed. It's okay. We'll talk about it tomorrow after breakfast. Like that's the time to have the conversation. <laughs> and it's taken me a while to learn that because I think, cause you fall asleep easily. I fall asleep more difficult and I'll just like, I've had, I've had sleepless nights because we've, because it, I want it to be finished. And then you realize in the morning after I do get some sleep, Oh, that's fine. Yeah. That's not really your another, problem. It seems so important to me in the middle of the night and you know, night brain. Yeah. And we actually, you know, we've both dabbled in the 12 step world and we used an, an acronym from 12 step called halt hungry, angry, lonely, tired. And we, we talk about like, there is, there are certain red flags. Like this is not the right time to have a conversation. If, if either or both of you are hungry, if you're both angry, maybe you need to cool off. Not so much lonely, tired for sure, but we've added one, which is alcohol. Mm. If either of us have had even one glass of wine, we either of us can say, you know what? Let's pause this until tomorrow. Because again, it's the same thing as being tired. I'm just not as present or clear or empathetic. Those are the wrong times to have the conversation. Yeah, I've added the S to halt so that it's halts because I want to account for sickness. Uh, Right? Same sort of thing where it's like definitely not the best time. And um, it actually turns out that when you're mad, you're literally in a different brain state. Yeah. Right? When you're sleepy, you're literally in a different bank state. So you think in that moment that this is the truth. This is who I am. I'm going to express what I need to say. Turns out you're expressing what someone else 
needs to say, right? In a very real way, you're a different person. And yeah. so, yeah. Um, so yeah, Angela and I had to learn that one early in the relationship too, because I was <laughs> like, you know what? I'm not going to be up at like two o'clock screaming and arguing and fighting about things when I'm like 19. It doesn't work out well. It just mm-hmm. doesn't, right? Mm-hmm. But she had the like, we're not going to bed asleep, right? Or we're not going to sleep angry. And I'm like, I'll sleep on a couch. I'll sleep somewhere. I, I don't care, right? Because one of the other of us are going to end up saying something we regret. And then we'll be fighting about an unfortunate incident. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not the actual thing that started it. Anyways, <laughs> we all have been in that relationship. And then we have to pay $200 to have a counselor and an <laughs> appointment. And yeah. then it's just <laughs> well, I think that what really brought this on for me, I haven't, we haven't talked about this in a while, but a few years ago, I, uh, I had a herniated disc in my back, which mm-hmm. led to nerve pain. It impinged my spinal nerve, my, my sciatic nerve, which I don't know if you've ever experienced it. It's, he was dissociating. I was just, so I was, it was so painful that I was disassociating. And then they were giving me Valium, like large doses of Valium as we were trying to figure out what surgical intervention to have. Like there was three weeks of this, of me on Valium and in, or in pain. Like, and, and acetaminophen. And acetaminophen, yeah, kind of all at the same time. So I was either watching Scrubs or angry, you know, like that was sort of, you know, like, and, and, and I remember we just had these, oh, we had all these arguments at the time. They seemed so reasonable to me. I was just like, oh, we're just having an argument. That's okay. We can have an argument. And then after the surgery, after the healing, I was like, oh my God, oh my, I'm surprised you're still like with me. I was this close to not marrying you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't blame you. I but don't. He was t- I really like, I, I could see he's in a difference. Like this is not him. And that same month, a study came out showing that high doses of acetaminophen actually turn off the brain's ability to feel empathy for other people. And I was like, he's on the highest doses of, of acetaminophen that you can take. And as soon as he came out of the, the, the drug haze, he was like, what happened? But that's really, it, but, and that's an extreme case. And it's really easy to see, okay, that's an extreme case. Right. But what it's, what it's highlighted for me is if I've had sugar, if I've had the alcohol, if I'm feeling a little tired, like those are all in some ways potentially s- subtly disassociative states or states that actually ch- change who I am and how I show up. And what I need to do is actually wait. And actually what it's done for me is my self-care has gone through the roof now. So like I don't actually don't get into those states anymore because I know that I have to eat. I know that I have to exercise. And I know I have to take care of myself. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it reminds me, and Alex, you have way more experience with this, but sometimes when people are struggling with like eating and eating habits, right, it's like, are you hungry or bored or mad, right? Because a lot of times we end up eating and overeating because we're bored, mad, or upset about something, and it has nothing to do with the actual hunger. And so understanding the emotional eating cycle is is very similar to this. I wrote a whole book about it. You did indeed. What's the name of that book, by the way? Women, Food, and Desire. There we go. Um, all righty. So, um, per the usual, I could talk to you all for a long, long time, but we're going to go ahead and wrap up today's conversation. Um, we've covered quite a bit of ground. As the guest for today's podcast, you get to leave our listeners with an invitation or a challenge, depending upon whichever most resonates with you. So, based upon what we've talked about, what would you invite or challenge our listeners to do? I want to challenge people. Can I? Can I offer? Can we? Can we each do? Can we each do one? Yes. Can we each do? Sure. One? We got two guests. Let's do it. All right. So I want to challenge every person who identifies as a woman to take this all-in method and use it for your next important conversation. Like really, and actually sit down and use it yourself to get clear about how you feel and where you are 
on that important topic before you take it to somebody else. All righty. And similar to Alex, I think I want to I want to challenge people who share who, whose identity I share. So I'm I am a middle aged white man uh, who and I operate a lot in in sort of business environment where their where leadership is often people who look look and sound and are as tall as me. And one of the things that I want to challenge people in those environments to do or, or who wear that identity is, frankly, to listen more than you speak and to specifically, and actually I'm going to challenge them through, I'm going to recommend somebody else's book, which is Chris Voss's book, um, Never Split the Difference. He's an FBI former hostage negotiator who talks about the need for tactical empathy to understand deeply somebody else's position as being the magic key to getting everything you want. And that all starts with using listening. And this is what Voss says, but using listening as a kind of martial art, right? Like you like to really, really lean in to setting your agenda aside, setting aside how smart you are and how, you know, how, how leaderly you want to be and just listen. Alex, Bob, thanks so much for joining me today. It's been a great conversation as I suspected it would be. Um, Really appreciate you. Thank you so much for having us. This was so great. All right, listeners. So you heard it from Alex and Bob. Alex's challenge was if you identify as a woman to use the all in method in your next important decision. The emphasis on hers was finding out what you want and what's going on to uh, with yourself and listening to yourself. Bob invited um, a lot of folks to do more listening than speaking, with the emphasis being on hearing the other person really intently. Until next time, stand tall and start finishing. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that'll help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.